Welcome back to the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3, and we are still hanging out in education, but today we're taking a bit of a detour and we're talking about education as it relates to the legal profession. So as students are approaching law school, you think about the stress that they endure, the stress that they encounter. But what about if that stress occurred even before they applied? What if we're talking about the stress that comes with being from a marginalized or oppressed community and we talk about the obstacles that are related to that stress? Think about how much lost potential there is for students who don't even have the opportunity to apply for a law program. And so today I am excited to be talking to Armin Salik, who's going to be telling us a little bit about the innovation that he's adopted for bringing students from those populations into the courtroom in ways where they feel confident, where they feel that they are prepared and they feel like they fit and belong in the courtroom. It would be neglectful on my part not to mention the fact that Armin and I met at a pandemic birthday party. Um, We had actually never met each other before, but we started a small conversation during a Zoom birthday party this year, and we hit it off really quickly, especially talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And he said, you know, I've got this thing that I'm working on that I'm really excited to share, and I knew right away that I wanted to have him on the show. So I'm excited to talk about some of the things that he's doing to foster innovation, but also to foster diversity equity, and inclusion. And so today I am excited to introduce you all to Armin Salik. Armin? So like he said, my name is Armin Salik, and I am a proud teacher and attorney from Austin, Texas. I am an attorney by practice, and I'm currently back in school for another degree at Harvard. I'm in the Center for Public Leadership as a Zuckerman Fellow. So my life mission is to help expand legal education for high school students and middle school students, and to expand free legal services in communities that need need help. You wanna tell us a little bit more about a Zuckerman Fellow? What does that entail and what does it mean? Sure, so there's this fellowship at Harvard that's for attorneys, doctors, and MBAs who are going back to school to get a degree in public service. So some of us are getting education degrees, some of us are getting public policy degrees, and some public health. I think the real idea is that, hey, we know you're gonna be doing good and we also know you're gonna go broke So here is some financial support so we can help make your dreams happen. And, you know, for me, going from law school to becoming a teacher, this fellowship was the only way that I could kind of have this big dream and take this next step. Great, great. So let's sort of set the stage for today's conversation. Let's talk about DEI, not just the definition, but the role of it in your work. Sure. Uh, For me, I want every single student that is in an American high school classroom to be able to dream of the goals that I was able to dream of. I want them to see themselves as future attorneys, doctors, engineers, construction workers, nurses, teachers, whatever they want. I don't want them to be limited based on their financial background, their social background, or their neighborhood. What I want to see is that higher education, uh, professional degrees, doctoral degrees, are a cross-section of society, not a select few from the most elite communities. Mm. So we were also talking about this challenge as far as diverse representation of students in law school, right? And how did we get here? Like, why? what are some of the barriers that presented themselves 
that make it difficult for students of color to access law school? So law school, first of all, most of the students that I work with have never met an attorney before. I'm the first attorney that they've ever interacted with. By the time they're done with our program, they've met about 50 attorneys in different practice areas. But before that, this idea of lawyers and attorneys is just something from movies or shows. It's not something that's relatable. You know, when you haven't seen that mentor in real life, when you haven't seen that person in real life that looks like you uh, in the courtroom, you're not going to see yourself in that vision, right? So part of it is that students don't see themselves as attorneys. It's kind of this fancy occupation that's for social elites. And they also don't have access because of financial constraints. You know, we talk every day about giving students access to college. You know, giving people access to law school means getting them into higher education, getting them into college, you know, having them not work long enough so that they can study for the LSAT while paying for that expensive LSAT course, getting into law school after applying for those schools, three more years of lost salary, uh, the expenses of going to law school and then passing the bar. And then at that point, you can actually financially support your family. For many of my students, four years of not having a full-time salary by going to college is already, you know, too much to even think about. So add on three years on top of that, where you're not supporting your younger siblings, you're not supporting your mom and dad, you're not helping out your grandparents. That's not a reality for them. You know, so it's, it's a matter of giving students the chance to think about long-term investment and providing them the financial support that I'm getting right now. If it wasn't for this fellowship, I wouldn't be at Harvard right now. The same way, if my students don't have the financial support that they need and the ability to dream of these, this type of career, then we're not going to get them there. It is so, so, so unfortunate how much lost potential there is as a result of, I mean, racism, of classism, of, of these structures that we have created. Like, I don't even know if we can actually reasonably quantify how much loss there is. And I really appreciate the way that you describe it and the way that you break it down, because we're not talking about graduate school. We're not talking about law school. We're talking about elementary. We're talking about middle school. We're talking about things that when you think about the kids, we should be doing more. And what we really do is we create obstructive systems that are difficult for our children and families to navigate. And that's unfair. Absolutely. And, you know, part of my issue with our current plan to fix the inequities in the legal education field is that we do it too late. You know, our idea of adding to diversity in the legal profession is that, hey, once you get into law school, those big time firms are going to have diversity positions, right? So they will hire a few students of color, a few migrants, and then they'll say, you know what, we are promoting diversity. Well, let's go back. You know, if we were actually providing support for students in middle school and high school to dream bigger and giving them the financial support, we wouldn't have to create special positions for diverse students. We would already have such an amazing selection of students to interview, to hire, to put in those big time positions. But we don't do that. We wait until law school when so many of the brightest students have already been left behind. You know, I, I frequently assign my students with tasks that are typically reserved for law school, not even college. And it is absolutely incredible to see 
the way they analyze cases, the way they analyze constitutional issues. And many of the students that give me the greatest responses are the same ones that, you know, leave school and handle 40 hour a week jobs. They're the same ones that, you know, this idea of college is so removed from their reality that law school, I mean, it might as well be a fairy tale, right? But if we go back and we create a pipeline to where we can take those students from middle school, from high school, and put them on a pathway to the legal profession, not only are they able to serve themselves, but we have, you know, a population of students that are civically minded, who know their rights and responsibilities, and who are advocates for the community. So it's not just about fixing, you know, just one life. It's about giving an entire community somebody that can be their representative, their voice in the community. Now, it sounds like the program that you've pushed forward is really rooted in addressing a lack of diversity in the legal profession. Tell us more about how it came to be, maybe your vision for the program, and what some of the desired outcomes would be. So three years ago, I started teaching at Aikens High School, and I became a law teacher. So this program already had three courses, a principles of law course, a court systems course, and a law practicum for the most advanced course students. It was a capstone course. So I came in and I saw a group of students that were ready for high responsibility. They were ready to take on the challenge of helping out their community with legal services. So together with my legal eagles, the Aikens Legal Eagles, <laughs> we started the first high school legal aid clinic in the country. So I, I knew that these students were ready for it because we, these are the same kids that are helping take care of their families. And these are the same kids that are, you know, working 40 hours a week. So when they come to campus, they come with an emotional maturity. They come with a level of responsibility that many other students may not have. So all of a sudden we have this legal aid clinic and I have a cohort of 12 students that are ready to work with me and we are ready to serve. So we begin by handling easier cases, but for free for members of our South Austin community. And from there, it has become this amazing program where we've provided probably about a total of 500 hours of free legal services through both our work and the work of our partners. Uh, we've probably provided about $75,000 worth of free legal services as well, as well. And through this whole experience, the students in this program are given an opportunity that isn't found elsewhere, right? Our students can say that they've worked on actual legal cases while in high school. This is something that people usually can't say until they are in law school. So this school that is typically seen as disadvantaged is rated a four out of 10 by greatschools.org. Now you're seeing students come out with experiences that can't be found in West Austin, Dallas, Houston, or anywhere else across the country. So this is a part of the mission to help our students advance and get into those law schools. When they can start seeing themselves doing the work at the high school level, hopefully they can see themselves doing that work 10 years down the line. And what we have provided in terms of free legal services has been a huge benefit for our community. Meanwhile, our students are also in the courtroom advocating in their mock trial program. They actually brought home back-to-back -back mock trial regional titles, and now they're competing with these big-time public schools, private schools, charter schools. You know, So I'm sitting there as a student, and I'm from a community where people are more likely to envision themselves as defendants than defense attorneys. But all of a sudden, I'm helping on an attorney and I'm working on a real case. I'm serving clients. I'm serving South Austin. 
I'm winning mock trial titles. Now it's so much easier to see yourself in the courtroom in the right position. Now it's easy to say, yeah, I, I can be an attorney. I've already argued the rules of evidence in front of a Texas Supreme Court justice in our courtroom. I've already helped out somebody with a divorce. I've already helped somebody else write their will. I've helped somebody else with a gender marker and name change on their ID. So it's, it's opportunities like this that we can use to help students in underserved communities see themselves in the places that we want to help them get to, right? We expect students from schools where they've nev never met an attorney to compete with students where, you know, half the parents are attorneys and doctors and engineers and teachers. It's hard, right? When you don't have anybody around you that you see in that space, it's hard to see yourself in that space. That's facts. Yeah. We didn't get a chance to talk much during the, the birthday party because we were supposed to be paying attention naturally. And you've hit on a few points that really resonate with me as a macro social worker. I'm often thinking about systems. I'm thinking about policies and I'm thinking about the way that they overlap. Could you describe some of the policies that we should consider as we're building out the safety net? What are the protective factors that should be in place that remove some of these barriers to access? Absolutely. So for this particular program, if we want to create equity in the legal field, we need to start early, right? One thing that I really try to push is creating high school legal programs. And it's something that we forget about, right? You know, just like we don't talk to them about tax. We don't talk to them about, you know, how to run a business, how to manage your credit. We also really do a poor job of teaching students about their rights and responsibilities. You know, this this is a space in the education sector where not only are we teaching them about their personal rights, but we're, we're creating a generation of students who are advocates, who are able to advocate for themselves, advocate for others, right? So I, I would love to see an investment in legal education at the high school level. Uh, I would also love to see a continued emphasis on providing financial support for lower income students to get into higher education, right? We're seeing a movement right now where schools like the University of Texas, Texas State, are providing financial support for students to think about that next four years, right? Where we didn't see that five years ago. Five years ago, for a lot of high school students that were academically you know, advanced, who were getting into these schools, they saw that you know, tuition bill and they said, you know what, I can't do this, right? Now we're seeing a movement to where higher education institutions are understanding that if we want to give these students a chance to achieve on this level, we need to provide the financial support. Because the, the truth is that there are some students that live their entire life fully dedicated to their own future. But for many of the students that come from lower income communities, every single day they're expected to contribute to their families. They're expected to help pay the bills. They're expected to help take care of their younger siblings, their family members, their relatives. It's a communal existence. It's a, an existence that is full of responsibilities that folks like me didn't know, right? You know, I was never tasked with taking care of a younger sibling. I was never asked to help put food on the table. So if we want to help create equity in higher education, we need to create equity in access. So I want to see more financial support for students. I want us to help kids dream bigger. I think one of the issues that I see is that 
even as teachers and counselors, we are always quick to help students understand the financial burden of higher education. You know, you go to a school on the west side of town, when they talk about higher education, it's about fraternities, it's about football games, it's about cheerleading, it's about the band, it's about spirit organizations. Then you go to, you know, the east side of town, and it's, hey, you're going to be taking thousands and thousands of dollars of loans. Um, the financial burden is going to be incredible, but try to think about what it's going to mean long term. By the time some of these speeches are done, I wanted to go back in time and not go to higher education either. We frame things differently based on the students that we approach. And I understand that we're dealing with different realities, but we have to create hope in the way that we speak about it, right? We have to understand that our voice and our messaging impacts how these students see it. You know, at home, they might be told um, when they're a first generation college student, hopefully, that, you know, college is not a reality for them. Then our messaging on campus says the same thing. So then what are they going to believe? They're going to believe it too. What I'm hearing there is how we describe or how we often describe dominant narrative and dominant narrative often tells us who we are, who we can be. My first thought would be, let's change the narrative. But to do that, we have to bring things to scale. Could you talk to some of the ways that you plan on broadening the reach for this program? So with this program, we are actually moving to expand that to other campuses across East Austin. The goal is to expand legal services, most importantly, and to continue to provide opportunities for high school students to grow in the legal field. We've helped them establish mentorships with attorneys and judges, and we are going to provide them with a pipeline. It's not just a matter of selling a dream. It's a matter of helping them get to that ultimate goal. So we're going to hold their hand. We're going to give them opportunities. As the first attorney in my family, I had a lot of questions. I didn't know what I was going to be doing. I didn't know what the LSAT was like. I didn't know what the bar exam was like. And I didn't know how much of a disadvantage that was until I went to law school. All of a sudden, eight of my 10 closest friends were attorneys. So even me coming from a pre-advantaged place, I felt like I lacked the institutional knowledge. So for students coming from economically disadvantaged communities, the gap is even greater. So how do we fill that? We have mentorships. We invest and we give these students a chance to dream bigger. I'm glad that you mentioned investing, right? And coming from more of a policy background, especially coming from public health, funding is always the, the question or the threat of the day. And so how does funding play a role in this program? I know as, as legal aid, you know, you're offering service for next to nothing, if nothing. And how do you keep things going, especially if you wanna bring it to scale at other sites. So that's what I'm working on right now. Uh, the fellowship that I have at Harvard, I'm dedicating the next year of my life to fighting for funding for this idea that we should invest in high school legal education. The goal is that we are going to raise enough funds over the next year to expand to those legal aid clinics in Northeast Austin, in Central East Austin, and continue in Southeast Austin. And funding is such a big, is big issue because we know that education is already underfunded. So when I roll in and I ask, hi y'all, I need the salary for three more law teachers. It's a big ask. You know, I, I also need the infrastructure to host legal aid clinics on three new campuses and I need the space. So it can be a challenge. But when people hear about 
this new idea, this new concept, both attorneys and non-attorneys, they wish they were in high schools talking about criminal justice. They wish they had a chance in high school to talk about both the experiences of African-Americans dealing with police and the experiences of police going through training and having to deal with challenging situations. They wish they could go back in time and learn about family law when they were going through those things in the courtroom themselves. And they wish they could go back and help out their community. Um, so we give people this exciting concept that I hope they, they will want to invest in because the benefit is multifold, not just for the students, but also for the community in terms of the free legal services. But competition is steep, right? Uh, we have all of these different missions out there when it comes to education. We have STEM investment, we have arts, and we are all competing for funds. Simultaneously, our public schools are competing with charter schools, and we have all kinds of debates there. So it's, it's a matter of proving the mission, just trying to fight for those dollars and cents. And I truly believe in this mission. I think that the students and their stories prove that we're on the right track. And when we talk about navigating these different systems, I tend to think of the intersectionality of the root causes of oppression. So let's call them out racism, sexism, classism, and thinking about how to address those root causes differ. And so I'm always interested in hearing how folks in the work manage the the root causes, but also the barriers that come with them. And so you think about different philosophies of superintendents or principals who may believe these are students, they should be focusing on high school curriculum, or you're thinking about funding as a challenge. How do you keep the work going despite all of that? I try to focus on the assets that we have, right? You, you mentioned three different forms of systemic problems that our country has. You mentioned classism, sexism, and you mentioned racism. So the legal profession is the perfect combination of that, right? Women are underrepresented, minorities are underrepresented, and obviously it's not very accessible to the poor. So what we can do is, you know, lament about the issues, or we can talk about the advantages. You know, I, I work with a community that is predominantly low income, um, but I also work with a community that is highly bilingual. So while we may not have the financial resources of West Austin, East Austin also has a rich community that is full of bilingual students, students who are higher in their level of maturity because of the experiences that they've had, because of the responsibilities that have been thrown on their shoulder. So we can see it as you know deficit-minded, or we can see it as asset-minded, right? When I, when I look at East Austin, I think about those students that are underserved, that are subject to racism, classism, sexism, and I try to find what strengths we can pull from that. What about those experiences have made you maybe more adept, maybe more capable of serving your community, more capable of succeeding in law school? And I, I see that we have students that are growing up a lot quicker than they should. You know, it, it's, it's a heavy burden, but it shows in the way that they act with our clients. It shows in the way that they serve. It shows in the way that they take care of each other. Their bilingual skills help us serve a broader base. They open up doors to new careers and jobs that may not be open to students in West Austin at the same rate. 
So what, what I try to do when I think about all these obstacles is to constantly keep focused on an asset-based approach to education. You know, we can talk about the gap in financial resources available between East Austin and West Austin, which is the most economically segregated city in America. Or we can talk about what does this offer? What is special about these pockets in East Austin where we see predominantly minority communities? And there are so many assets there, language skills, maturity, um, work ethic, family, community, and we can use those to the advantage of everybody. I love it. Because I think in many cases, we, we do operate from a deficiency model where you know, all we're looking at are the things that groups don't have. So applying the assets in the development of a program and the way it's evaluated and the way that it's implemented, I think that helps frame not only how people receive it and participate, but also helps to frame for the funding, right? Like the way that we look at this program is we're enriching what people already have. We're not asking you to fund what's missing. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I, I, I was trained to be an immigration attorney and I spent the majority of my time working at immigration firms or an immigration clinic or handling my own immigration cases. And I can't tell you how many times our work came to a standstill because we didn't have somebody that could communicate with our Spanish speaking clients. Now, if you're in Austin, Texas, and you're thinking about where can I find a community that is full of bilingual students who can communicate with both English attorneys and legal assistants and paralegals and Spanish clients, I'm going to East Austin. I'm going to Aikens High School. I'm going to Travis High School. I'm going to Eastside Memorial, Northeast and Navarro. I'm going to these places that are packed full of students that would be perfect for this role. Part of the reason that I am incredibly excited about this project isn't just that this is the community I care most about, I truly do, but I also think that it's the perfect community to fill the roles that are available there. And we don't have enough investment in that. You know, when I'm thinking about immigration firms that are looking for attorneys, they're looking for Spanish language attorneys, Spanish speaking attorneys. They're looking for bilingual paralegals, bilingual legal assistants. There's so many jobs out there that are not filled because we don't have the human capital to fill those positions. Now, if we can connect this East Austin community to those jobs, then all of a sudden we've created a pipeline where we're filling a need and there's a real demand for those positions. There's a real demand for the people that can fill those roles. And it creates an opportunity to take you know, one family at, at a time from a place of poverty to a place of financial sustainable success. And you know, this is just one example of how this can happen. Obviously, this is my mission. This is my mission of creating a pipeline of students from East Austin into the legal profession. But there are so many other ways that we can help underserved populations getting, get into careers that are in high demand. As long as we're willing to invest, as long as we're willing to look beyond the deficiencies and start looking toward the assets in the communities that we typically see as underserved. So what are we doing wrong here? Because this feels like a reoccurring issue across sectors, across fields and disciplines. Why does this continue to happen? One of the greatest issues when it comes to equity is that we continue to use a system that punishes the poor to evaluate high school campuses. 
you know, I've mentioned a couple of times during our discussion, the fact that Aikens High School is a four out of 10, you know, and every year we're ranked a four out of 10, three out of 10 or five out of 10. And, you know, I, I did the numbers and I looked at them and I found out that 95% of the variation in standardized test scores could be explained simply by knowing how many economically disadvantaged students a school serves. So we have this system that tells schools, that tells teachers, and tells students that their failures largely based on their financial status. You know, this is, this system disincentivizes schools and programs to invest in lower income communities, right? When we're looking at programs like mine, I might be judged based on the percentage of my students that graduate, the percentage of my students that go to college, go to law school. Part of that is going to be my work, but a lot of it's going to be the work of the system that ends up placing students on the pathway to dropping out to lower standardized test scores and things of that nature. And and working in a space where you're advocating for people who look like you to people who don't always look like you, I know that can be taxing. Um, that's the one of the biggest challenges I have with advocacy is the toll that it takes on you emotionally. And so I'm always interested in how people manage that, the work, manage themselves. So could you talk to us a little bit about your self-care when it comes to advocacy? To be honest, this career is my version of self-care. You know, I, I was planning to be an attorney. I was planning to work at a firm. And I realized when I started teaching that I liked being in the education space a lot more. So my version of self-care is continuing to stay close to the students, continuing to stay close to the classroom. This is kind of what gets me excited. You know, I'm willing to work, you know, long hours if it's for cases that I actually care about and students that I care about. It's a whole nother story when you're waking up on a Monday and you have 70 hours of working for clients that you'll never meet, right? Mm -hmm. So my version of self-care is the relationship with the students. And I, there isn't a single day that I regret becoming a teacher because of the relationships that I've built and the people that I'm going to go back to Austin to, and I'm going to get to see their graduations, see them grow up, maybe become attorneys. And that's, you know, that's not my ultimate goal. If they become social workers, if they become teachers, if they become journalists, they could become um, whatever they want. As long as they're happy. Um, that's my happiness too. That's my self-care. We spent a bulk of the episode talking about kids and kids dreaming. And so I'm just wondering, what are your hopes for the future? What, what are your dreams? We, we talk about education as the great equalizer, but we have created a system that punishes people for being poor. We use standardized test scores to tell schools that they're failing because of the populations they serve. And at the end of the day, if we want to have a system that is a great equalizer, we need to celebrate the campuses and the teachers that serve the underprivileged as much as we celebrate the campuses and the teachers that serve the more advantaged. Um, our current system of using standardized tests does nothing but remind everybody about the demographics of a campus. There's nothing that you can find on a standardized test score result that you couldn't find on Zillow or apartments.com. My greatest hope for our system of education is that we stop using standardized test scores and start trusting students 
teachers and principals to own their own education, to own their own instruction. Because at the end of the day, when we create a system where we are punishing the consequences of poverty, we're gonna create a system where schools are competing, not for what's best for a student, but what, what students are more likely to succeed. So when I think to our current competition between charter schools and public schools, I think about this fight right now, where we have some schools that serve all and some schools that serve a slightly different population. And then we almost use our most disadvantaged students as ammunition against those other campuses. You know, we celebrate when we are ranked higher than another school which in all reality is probably a school with more economically disadvantaged students. We are punished when we don't succeed on the same level as that school next to us, which in all reality probably has less economically disadvantaged students than us. This system isn't sustainable and it's not effective. If we want to create equity, whether it be on account of race or class or whatever, we need to stop pretending like standardized test scores are a form of accountability. They're simply a measure of who you serve instead of how you serve. That's great. And I realize we're in the middle of another school year and where can people go to learn more about you, about the program, about the students? I hope they'll check out youthjusticealliance.com. You know, that website is going to be built up over the next year, but you can see some of our accomplishments over the last year, two years, three years. You'll see some pictures from the students who have won the mock trial titles. You'll see some of the students who have helped out their community with free legal services. And you'll see our plan for growing. You know, the Youth Justice Alliance is the name of the umbrella organization that will help expand the Aikens Legal Aid Clinic to more campuses. And our, our hope is that in the next five years, we'll have three more campuses providing free legal services. And when you think about you know, communities that really struggle to handle our, handle our legal system. Our legal system is not easy to maneuver. So when you talk about communities that are, that struggle with language issues, with economic barriers and access to our legal system, when we can add a resource, when we can add a community of people who are willing to help for free, all of a sudden that person who needs to maneuver an immigration case can handle that matter. That person that needs help with an eviction can be helped. That person that needs their gender marker change on their ID can be helped. And all of a sudden, the focus can go back to addressing academic needs or professional needs. It can go back to spending the money on the necessities instead of spending it on a court case, right? So it's about alleviating some of the symptoms of poverty in the immediate, and then talking about how we can create a cohort of students who can get jobs that will permanently remove them from the experiences of poverty. Now, if you want to keep up with you personally, any social media that you want to share? Add me. Uh, my name is very easy to look up. I'm the easiest person to look up on Facebook because my name is pretty unique. Uh, first name is Armin, A-R-M-I-N last name Salik, S-A-L-E-K. I hope to meet you all in person soon after COVID. If not, let's chat on Facebook, Instagram, or wherever else you would like. Hey, Armin, I'd just like to thank you for hopping on today. I think 
what we've talked about really resonates, not just for people who are thinking about law school or not just for high school students, but for most students as they're considering what happens beyond graduation. And so I'd just like to thank you for the work that you're doing, creating space for populations that are not always considered or often forgotten for that matter. And I'm really looking forward to the results. I'm, I'm hopeful for evaluation that demonstrates opportunities for communities that look like ours across fields. And so thank you, one, for hopping on the show and just thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this was fantastic. And I hope people continue to invest in our schools, continue to invest in education, and hopefully they'll even invest in the Youth Justice Alliance. I'd like to give thanks again to Armin Salik for joining us on Equity Matters Podcast. I think when we consider education and we consider it to be the foundation of our future and for our future, it brings the question, are we doing enough? And we realize and we know, we acknowledge, but we don't do anything about the fact that there are barriers that prevent equitable education. I just did a presentation last week around the new normal, what COVID-19 has presented as far as opportunity. And I adopted a racial equity lens to talk about education, to talk about the wealth gap, and to talk about housing. And the through line of all of these things is that we need to dismantle, we need to abolish, we need to transform our systems. And so I'm grateful for each and every one of the individuals who have joined me on the podcast who are leading the challenge, who are advocates, who are on the front lines. And this is my sincere thank you to all of you. My second thank you is to the listeners. And I know a majority of my listeners are family and friends who put up with my rants, but it's also graduate students who I believe are the future. It's also college students who I believe are the future of our workforce. And so I'm excited for the future that you all have to come. And I'm excited because I know all of the things that you have lined up with your potential and the vision that you all have for our future. And so the, the irony of this particular episode is the fact that it's going to be published the day after our election. And so I can only be hopeful for what the future may hold. And even if we don't get the turnout that we desire, that we pray for, that changes nothing about the fact that equity continues to matter. And I am grateful for the spaces that I found myself in and the conversations that I've been a part of. And I'm hoping that they continue to occur. Please do not be defeated in this season. We have much work to do. So with that, I'm logging off. This is your host. That is JB3. Follow us on Instagram. That's at Equity Matters Podcast. And as always, Equity Matters. Equity Matters.